You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Dance, no judgment here today. So it is February 13th, 8.03 a.m. It is a snow day in the northeast, at least here in Connecticut. Uh, not as much snow maybe as I thought there would be, but this is meant to be a fast-moving storm that's meant to kind of pick up and kind of go through for the next four or five hours. So everyone is as snug as a bug in a rug, and it is time for us to continue our live read of Crucial Conversations. This book is just a must-read. I'm so happy that I'm reading it. I'm so grateful that I'm reading it. Uh, and it's about time as well. And uh, so just sit back, relax. If you're in the Northeast, you know, you're not going anywhere today. So um, if you've got comments, if you want to come up on stage at some point, just raise your hand if you're a regular. Otherwise, uh, we'll have time for conversation at the end. So this is a uh, chapter two. First of all, just uh, shout outs to Terence and Danny and, and uh, Influencer X, the great Will. Um, and uh, this is chapter two. It's called Mastering Crucial Conversations, The Power of Dialogue, and there's a quote to start off with um, by Martin Luther King Jr., and the quote is, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Wow, what a quote. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. To be honest, we didn't study our way into a discovery of crucial conversations. Instead, we stumbled into it. Over the years, we worked with dozens of leaders in a variety of industries who were trying to implement dramatic changes. Part of our consulting methodology involved helping them find opinion leaders embedded throughout their organizations who might be helpful in their effort. We did so in a pretty straightforward way. First, we asked people to name the two or three people they turned to first when they were struggling to get something done. Over the past decades, we've asked tens of thousands of people to identify the individuals in their organizations who knew how to make things happen when others felt stymied. We wanted to find those who were not just influential, but far more influential than the rest. Each time as we compiled the names into a list, a pattern emerged. Lots of people were named by, two or, by one or two colleagues. Some found their way onto five or six lists. There were people who were good at influence, but not good enough to be widely identified as top opinion leaders. And then there were the handful who were named 30 or more times. These were the best, the ones who could make big things happen in their areas. Some were managers and some supervisors. Many were not. One of the opinion leaders we became particularly interested in meeting was named Kevin. He was he was the only one of eight vice presidents in his company to be identified as exceedingly influential. We wanted to know why, so we watched him at work. 
At first, Kevin didn't do anything remarkable. In truth, he looked like every other VP. He answered his phone, talked to his direct reports, and continued about his pleasant but routine routine. The startling discovery. After trailing Kevin for almost a week, we began to wonder if he really did act in ways that set him apart from others or if his influence was simply a matter of popularity. And then we followed Kevin into a meeting. By the way, uh, interesting that they talk about influence and popularity. So I remember um, when, you know, the last company that I actually um, ran for about, founded and ran for about uh, five years was a company called Evolution. And um, our goal was to commit uh, to connect startups and brands. By the way, if you are in Clubhouse, um, I'm just uh, pasting three POAP links. If you haven't redeemed your POAP yet for the month, um, that is a link. Just follow it, put in your email address, and you'll be able to get a little badge that actually says we had coffee together in the month of February. Collect them all, and you may be able to redeem them for something as well. And uh, Will, who's in our Discord, I assume that you have them uh, already, that you've done yours for February. If not, um, I'll post them as well for you. So anyway, um, I remember it's a very vivid conversation that I was um, talking to a founder and um, this guy was a former NFL uh, star. He um, had to retire though because of a, a knee injury. And so, you know, he was looking to do something else and he started a company um, that was trying to reinvent influence. And one of the things he said was, you know, in my entire time, you know, playing in the NFL, people would, you know, marketers and PR people and brands would come and they'd offer me deals to sponsor, to, you know, to shill, to hawk their products or to be a spokesperson. But they didn't know anything about me. There, there was no basis for me to be actually or connection. There was no reason why me versus someone else should be actually associated with their product he said because at the end of the day there's a difference between influence and popularity and i'll never forgot this this insight he said what they're chasing is popularity but not influence influence at the end of the day is a measure of quality popularity at the end of the day is a measure of of uh, quantity so quality and quantity now, in some cases, you absolutely can have both. In some cases, you need both. That's fine. You know, if you can get the most best people, that's essentially what the goal is. But the reality of, of influence is you can be extremely influential and have a small following. You can be extremely influential and be in a small room, in clubhouse or whatever the case may be. It's not just about size in this particular case. And so it's just, I thought it was very interesting that they, that they mentioned that. So let's find out um, what happened with Kevin in the meeting. Kevin, his peers, and their boss were deciding on a new location for their offices. Would they move across town, across the state, or across the country? The first two execs presented their arguments for their top choices, and as expected, their points were greeted by penetrating questions from the full team. No vague claim went unclarified, no unsupporting reason unquestioned. Then Chris, the CEO, pitched his preference, one that was both unpopular and potentially disastrous. However, when people tried to disagree or push back, Chris responded poorly. Since he was the big boss, 
he didn't exactly have to browbeat people to get what he wanted. Instead, he became slightly defensive. First he raised an eyebrow, then he raised his finger, finally he raised his voice just a little. It wasn't long until people stopped questioning him and Chris's inadequate proposal was quietly accepted. Well, almost. That's when Kevin spoke up. His words were simple enough, something like, Hey Chris, can I check something out with you? The reaction was stunning. Everyone in the room stopped breathing. But Kevin ignored the apparent terror of his colleagues and plunged on ahead. In the next few minutes, he in essence told the CEO that he appeared to be violating his own decision-making guidelines. He was subtly using his power to move the new officers to his hometown. Kevin continued to explain what he saw happening, and when he finished the first minutes of this delicate exchange, Chris was quiet for a moment. Then he nodded. You're absolutely right, he finally concluded. I have been trying to force my opinion on you. Let's back up and try again. This was a crucial conversation, and Kevin played no games whatsoever. He didn't resort to silence, like his colleagues, nor did he try to force his arguments on others. Somehow, he managed to achieve absolute candor, but he did so in a way that showed deep respect for Chris. It was a remarkable thing to watch. As a result, the team chose a far more effective location, and Kevin's boss appreciated his care and coaching. When Kevin was done, one of his peers turned to us and said, Did you see how he did that? If you want to know how he gets things done, figure out what he just did. So we did. In fact, we spent the next 30 years discovering what Kevin and people like him do. What typically set them apart from the rest of the pack was their ability to avoid what we came to call the fool's choice. And I'm just making a little note of that because the fool's choice, because that is the name of the episode. All right. Where did it go to? Ah, here it is. You see, Kevin's contribution was not his insight. Almost everything could see what was happening. People knew they were, they were allowing themselves to be steamrolled into making a bad decision. But all of them except for Kevin believed they had to make a choice between two bad alternatives. Option one, speak up and turn the most powerful person in the company into their sworn enemy. Option two, suffer in silence and make a bad decision that might ruin the company. The mistake most of us make in our crucial conversations is we believe that we have to choose between telling the truth and keeping a friend. As we suggested in the previous chapter, we begin believing in the fool's choice from an early age. For instance, we learnt that when Grandma served an enormous wedge of a famous Brussels sprouts pie a la mode and then asked, do you like it? She really meant, do you like me? When we answered honestly and saw the look of hurt and horror on her face, we made a decision that affected the rest of our lives. From this day forward, I will be alert for moments when I must choose between candor and kindness beyond the fool's choice. And from that day forward, by the way, you know, the, the, I'm sure those of you with spouses or whatever, especially if you've been to therapy or, you know, marriage counseling, whatever, you know, you always hear the saying, 
do you want to be do you want to be uh you know do you want to be happy or do you want to be right right do you want to be right or do you want to be kind and that's the fool's choice so the fool's choice is interesting by the way the fool's choice is essentially the catch 22 i mean it's kind of genius i don't know what the answer is i'm i can't wait to read more because you know for me how many times how many times have we gone into a situation where, um, w- you know, we use the phrase catch-22. We use the, fa- the phrase catch-22. And we know in many instances that, that we are, we, like, it's a lose-lose, whatever we do. Say nothing, you know, and, and build up resentment and, and bitterness and, you know, and feel like we've been aggrieved or, or, or dealt an injustice, speak up and... We've basically now, you know, it's almost like, you know, the elephant in the room has been addressed and, and things will never be the same. So it's intriguing that there could be a win-win here. The mistake most of us make in our crucial conversations is we believe that we have to choose between telling the truth and keeping a friend. As we suggested in the previous chapter, we begin believing in the fool's choice. Oh, sorry, I just read that. My bad. I apologize. <laughs> Beyond the fool's choice. And from that day forward, we found plenty of those moments with bosses, colleagues, loved ones, and line cutters. Drawing out lag time became a way of life and the consequences followed. That's why our research with Kevin and hundreds of individuals like him was so important. We discovered a core group of human beings who refused to make the fool's choice. Their goal was different from your average person's. When Kevin spoke up, his implicit question was, how can I be 100% honest with Chris and at the same time be 100% respectful? Following that consequential meeting, we began looking for more Kevins. And we found them all over the world. We found them in industry, government, academia, and non-profit organizations. They were fairly easy to locate because they were almost always among the most influential employees in their organizations. Not only did they refuse to make the fool's choice, but they were also far more skilled in how they acted than their colleagues. But what exactly did they do? Kevin wasn't that different from his colleagues. Could what he did be learned by others? To answer the question, let's first explore what Kevin was able to achieve. This will help us see where we see see where we're trying to go. Then we'll examine the tools that effective communicators routinely use and learn to apply them to our own crucial conversations. Dialogue. When it comes to crucial conversations, skilled people find a way to get all relevant information from themselves and others out into the open. That's it. At the core of every successful conversation lies the free flow of information. People openly and honestly express their opinions, share their feelings, and articulate their theories. They willingly and capably share their views, even when their ideas are controversial or unpopular. It's the one thing that Kevin and the other and the other extremely effective communicators we studied were routinely able to achieve. What they do is effectively create a dialogue. Dialogue, the definition, noun, the free flow of meaning between two or more people. Wow, that's interesting. And I, you know, if that's actually the dictionary definition, the free flow of meaning between two or more people. It's very similar to something that I wrote in Join the Conversation. 
I said, I said, con- my definition of conversation is not between two or more people. It's between two or more sides, meaning two or more perspectives. That's conversation. Because when two people actually are saying the same thing or agree with one another or, or present the same perspective, that's not really conversation, at least in my definition. It's a very similar one to what you're seeing here with dialogue. As we talk about dialogue, we're faced with two questions. First, how does the free flow of meaning lead to success? Second, what can you do to encourage meaning to flow freely? What can you do to encourage meaning to flow freely? We'll explain the relationship between the free flow of meaning and success in this chapter. The second question, what must you do in order to achieve dialogue when it matters the most? will take us the rest of the book to answer. Filling the pool of shared meaning. Each of us enters conversations with our own thoughts and feelings about the topic at hand. This unique combination makes up our personal pool of meaning. This pool not only informs us, but also propels our every action. When two or more of us enter crucial conversations, by definition, we don't share the same pool. Our opinions differ. I believe one thing, you another. I have one history, you another. People who are skilled at dialogue do their best to make it safe for everyone to add meaning to the shared pool. Even ideas that at first glance appear controversial or wrong. So do you see this key point here? People who are skilled at dialogue do their best to make it safe for everyone to add meaning to the shared pool. Everyone adding meaning to the shared pool. Remember, we come in to the meeting to the, and we have our own pool. And now, by everyone contributing, the pool becomes a shared pool. Obviously, everyone doesn't agree with every idea. People simply do their best to ensure that all ideas find their way into the open. As the pool of shared meaning grows, it helps people in two ways. First, as individuals are exposed to a more accurate and relevant information, they make better choices. In a very real sense, the pool of shared meaning, maybe I actually should call the episode, I'm going to jot that down as well, the pool of shared meaning. These are just like key points here. just want to say good morning to Amid and Gailan, Terence. Uh, Slick, Danny, I've already said hi to you, Christopher, in our Discord. Um, if you if you wouldn't mind and you're in Clubhouse, it would be awesome if you uh, if you want to share the room, um, you know, with social media or just with Clubhouse, get a few more people in there, it would be awesome. Not that they have to, I don't care whether they do or don't, um, but I just think this is such a great conversation. So let's continue. Um, okay. As the pool of shared meaning grows, it helps people in two ways. First, as individuals are exposed to more accurate and relevant information, they make better choices. In a real sense, the pool of shared meaning is a measure of a group's IQ. The larger the shared pool, the smarter the decisions. On the other hand, we've all seen what happens when the shared pool is dangerously shallow, when people purposefully withhold meaning from one another, Individually smart people can do collectively stupid things. For example, a client of ours shared the following story. 
A woman checked into the hospital to have a tonsillectomy, and the surgical team erroneously removed a portion of her foot. How could this tragedy happen? In fact, why is it that nearly 22,000 hospital deaths in the United States each year stem from human error? In part, because many healthcare professionals are afraid to speak their minds. In this case, no fewer than seven people wondered why the surgeon was working on the foot but said nothing. Meaning didn't flow freely because people were afraid to speak up. Of course, hospitals don't have a monopoly on fear. In every instance where bosses are smart, highly paid, confident and outspoken, in other words, most of the world, people tend to hold back their opinions rather than risk angering someone in a position of power. I see, I see a hand raised. Yes, 2017. Good morning. Hey, good morning. It's not morning here. I think there is morning, but it's not in my country. Good afternoon. Good evening. Did you have a question or a comment so far? Mm, no, I don't want any comment. I don't have any. All right. Well, I'm going to tuck you back into the audience. If you have a question uh, later, please feel free to raise your hand and uh, we continue. Um, All right. Where were we? On the other hand, when people feel comfortable speaking up and, and meaning does flow freely, the shared pool can dramatically increase a group's ability to make better decisions. Consider what happened to Kevin's group. As everyone on the team began to explain his or her opinion, people formed a clearer and more complete picture of the circumstances. As they began to understand the whys and wherefores of different proposals, they built off one another. Eventually, as one idea led to the next and then to the next, they came up with an alternative that no one had originally thought of and that all wholeheartedly supported. As a result of the free flowing of meaning, the whole final choice was truly greater than the sum of the original parts. In short, and this is a key quote, the pool of shared meaning is the birthplace of synergy. As people sit through an open discussion, they understand why the shared solution is the best option, and they're committed to act. Kevin and the other VPs didn't buy into their final choice simply because they were involved. They bought in because they understood Conversely, when people aren't involved, when they sit back during touchy conversations, they're really committed to the final decision. Since the ideas remain in their heads and the opinions never make it into the pool, they end up quietly criticizing and passively resisting. Similarly, when others force their ideas into the pool, people have a hard time accepting the information. They may say they're, they're on board, but then walk away and follow through half-heartedly. To quote Samuel Butler, he that complies against his will is of his own opinion still. The time you spend upfront establishing a shared pool of meaning is more, than, is more than paid for by faster, more unified, and more committed action later on. For example, if Kevin and the other leaders had not been committed to their relocation decision, Terrible consequences would have followed. Some people would have agreed to move. Others would have dragged their feet. 
Some would have held heated discussions in the hallways. Others would have said nothing and then quietly fought the plan. More likely than not, the team would have been forced to meet again, discuss again and decide again, since only one person favoured the decision and the decision affected everyone. Don't get us wrong, we're not suggesting that every decision be made by consensus or that the boss shouldn't take part in or even make the final choice. We're simply suggesting that when whatever the decision-making method, the greater the shared meaning in the pool, the better the choice, the more the unity, and the stronger the conviction what whoever makes the choice. Every time we find ourselves arguing, running away, or otherwise acting in an ineffective way, it's because we don't know how to share meaning. Instead of engaging in healthy dialogue, we play costly games. For instance... Sometimes we move to silence. We play salute and stay mute. <laughs> That's another good name for this, for this episode. There's so many key points here. Salute and stay mute. I'm just making a note of that. Um, salute and stay mute. That seems like not a good party game. That is, we don't confront people in positions of authority. Or at home, we may play freeze your lover. With this tortured technique, we give loved ones the cold shoulder in order to get them to treat us better. What's the logic in that? Sometimes we rely on hints, sarcasm, innuendo, and looks of disgust to make our points. We play the martyr and then pretend we're actually trying to help. Or maybe, afraid to confront an individual, we blame an entire team for a problem, hoping the message will hit the right target. Whatever the technique, the overall method is the same. We withhold meaning from the pool. We go to silence. On other occasions, not knowing how to stay in dialogue, we try to force our meaning into the pool. We rely on emotional violence. Anything from verbal sniping to intellectual bullying to outright verbal attacks. We act like we know everything, hoping people will believe our arguments. We discredit others. We use force to get our way. We borrow power from the boss. We hit people with biased monologues. We make hurtful comments. The goal of all these behaviors is the same, to compel others to our point of view. So to sum up, when stakes are high, opinions vary, and emotions run strong, we're often at our worst. In order to move to our best, we have to find a way to explain what is in each of our personal pools of meaning, especially our high stakes sensitive and controversial thoughts and opinions, and to get others to share their pools. To achieve this, we have to develop the tools that make it safe for us to discuss these issues and to come to a shared pool of meaning. I'm going to take a quick break and a sip of coffee. You know, the... The key point that I've read so far that makes us very different is um, is the aspect of respect. Respect was a key word here, is a key word. And I think one of the, the things that I'm taking away already just kind of, you know, marinating um, in, in my mind is when you go into a high stakes conversation where saying nothing is is a losing proposition because of resentment and because of all this emotion and whatever you know 
And saying something is typically, you almost anticipate their reaction, right? Remember, how many times do we go and we, we're dealing with something controversial, we're speaking up, and we know almost in advance what the reaction's going to be. We know who we're dealing with. But the word respect is an interesting one because I think ultimately, I mean, we're hearing lots of important points here, this idea about creating a safe space for dialogue. We're hearing all these points about this idea of not just a safe space for dialogue, um, but respect, right? But also this idea of sh- you know shared meaning and, and, and contributing in pools. So if you understand where the other person is coming from, if you acknowledge and validate their thoughts and where they're coming from, not to, I think, um, basically kiss ass, um, but to kind of acknowledge the situation, then the idea ultimately is one plus one equals three, right? That we can actually get to a better place or we could get to a different place. Maybe the different place isn't the better place, but it is a shared space. <clears throat> and by doing that, by being able to say, I mean, essentially it is somewhat of a negotiation, in some cases, it is a little bit of a compromise. But, it, but the, the, the idea of shared is important because when it's shared, people feel vested. And I think that's the point that's also coming through here. When you feel you had an opportunity to talk, to be heard, um, to voice an opinion, and, and you believe in that shared outcome, it, I mean, you're setting yourselves up for success. So let's continue. Dialogue skills <clears throat> are learnable. Here's the really good news. The skills for mastering high-stakes interactions are quite easy to spot and moderately easy to learn. A well-handled crucial conversation all but leaps out at you when you see someone enter the dangerous waters of a high-stakes emotional controversial discussion and do a particularly good job. Your natural reaction is to step back in awe. What starts as a doomed discussion ends up with a healthy resolution. It can take your breath away. More important, not only are dialogue skills easy to spot, but they're also fairly easy to learn. That's where we're going next. We've isolated and captured the skills of the dialogue gifted over decades of research. First, we followed around Kevin and others like him. When conversations turned crucial, we took detailed notes. Afterward, we compared our observations, tested our hypotheses, and honed our models until we found the skills that constantly explain the success of brilliant communicators. Finally, we combined our theories, models, and skills into a package of learnable tools, tools for talking when stakes are high. We then taught these skills and watched as key performance indicators and relationships improved. Now we're ready to share what we've learned. Stay with us as we explore how to transform crucial conversations from frightening events into interactions that yield success and results. It's the most important set of skills you'll ever master. This is a a little box story, and it's called My Crucial Conversation, Bobby R. 
My crucial conversation began on the night before my first deployment to Iraq in 2004. There was a lot of tension between members of my family caused by past events and conf- past events and conflicting perspectives. The stress of my leaving to combat only increased the tension. On that night, one well-intentioned but deeply loaded question from my father sent me through the roof. The way I reacted over the next couple of hours started a downward spiral that affected my entire family. Siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, parents, children and grandparents all took sides. My family ties continued to unravel as I led a platoon of soldiers through the streets of Baghdad. My wife was home with our one-year-old and pregnant with our second. During my tour, additional family encounters only worsened the situation and after 14 months of combat... I came home to a family that was completely broken at every existing generation. The silence between me and my father continued for five years. Crucial conversations saved my relationship with my parents. A neighbor who is a Crucial Conversations trainer invited me to his class before my third tour in Iraq. A couple of weeks before I deployed, I reached out to my father to let him know about the two children he had never seen and that I was leaving for combat. I told him I couldn't make the same mistake I had made five years earlier, and we agreed to meet. On a beautiful sunset balcony in Houston, my dad and I spent three tense hours dealing with a lot of pain and built-up resentment. I kept in mind what I had been taught, and rather than compromising candor, tried my best to create conditions where we could be both honest and respectful. It was incredibly difficult. Sometimes the honesty threatened to put us right back in the angry state that got us there, but I kept focusing on what I really wanted, a relationship with my family. At the end of the conversation, we met my mom for dinner. She'd been the most hurt by my anger in the past and was skeptical. She was sure I was still the argumentative, sarcastic, spiteful and arrogant child of my youth. She gave me a chance based on my father's assessment of my respect, remorse and clear demonstration of mutual purpose. I'm now in a relationship, in a loving relationship with my wife, four children and parents. We've agreed to never bury our concerns in silence again. I attribute the relationship I have today to the success of that one crucial conversation on the balcony. Had I not practiced what I'd learned, my relationship with my father would have died, died from anger and indifference. The conversation happened because of a friend who introduced me to Crucial Conversations. Here's where we're going. Throughout the remainder of the book, we'll explore the tools people use to help create the conditions of dialogue. While Crucial Conversations rarely follow a neat path, the principles and skills we will share are generally applied in a predictable order. For example, part one of the book, What to Do Before You Open Your Mouth, describes the preparation principles the things we need to do before we begin to be to ensure we are primed for an effective conversation and there is a little chance and there is little chance of healthy dialogue if you don't focus on the right problem chapter 3 choose your topic get your motives right chapter 4 start with heart and manage your emotions chapter 5 master my stories part 2 is called how to open your mouth here I will teach you to recognize early signs of problems. Chapter 6, Learn to Look. Next, we'll share how to create the key condition that allows you to talk with almost anyone about almost anything. Safety. Chapter 7, Make it Safe. 
We then get tactical teaching strategies for, for sharing your views in a way that is both truthful and least likely to provoke defensiveness. Chapter 8, State My Path, and for others and for helping others to productively express their views as well. Chapter 9, Explore Others' Paths. Then we take you to a remarkable place in the U.S. Rocky Mountains where we learn lessons for minimizing the misery we feel when receiving tough feedback. Chapter 10, Retake Your Pen. In part three, how to finish, we'll share two important tools for finishing strong. Chapter 11, move to action. As you read on chapter 12, yeah, but, you will learn the key skills of talking, listening, and acting together in a way that improves both relationships and results. Finally, we'll tie all the theories and skills together. Chapter 13, putting it all together by providing both a model and an extended example. We are confident That as you not only read but practice what you learn, you will gain greater and greater confidence in talking when stakes are high. Summary. Mastering crucial conversations. When facing a crucial conversation, most of us unconsciously make a fool's choice. We think we have to choose between telling the truth and keeping a friend. Skilled communicators resist the false trade-off and look for ways to do both. They look for a way to be both 100% honest and 100% respectful at the same time. In short, they look for ways to get a dialogue, a conversation where meaning flows freely between parties resulting in a larger pool of information shared by all. A larger shared pool of meaning leads to better decisions, better relationships, and more unified action. The remainder of this book shares learned learnable skills designed to help you get to dialogue during your most crucial moments. If anyone has any comments or thoughts or or questions, um, feel free to raise your hand. Um, That's the end, and we go to part one, which is what to do before opening, what to do before you open your mouth. So I'm going to keep going. Part one, what to do before you open your mouth. I'm just also going to check and see what my calendar looks today. So if I go a little bit long, I don't know how much is in this chapter, in this part. 70% of the success of a crucial conversation happens in your head, not through your mouth. The skills in this section are the prerequisites of success. Get these right, and the right words will often flow naturally from you. Ignore these and no amount of techniques or artifice will be enough to compensate. In this section, you'll learn how to, how to be sure you're talking about the right things. Chapter 3, choose your topic. How to get your motives right. Chapter 4, start with heart. And how to understand and manage your own emotions when they're getting in the way of dialogue. Chapter 5, master my stories. Chapter 3, choose your topic. How to be sure you hold the right conversation. And there's a quote from Charles Kettering, a problem well stated is a problem half solved. A problem well stated is a problem half solved. The moment you open your mouth to hold a crucial conversation, you've already made a decision. You've decided what to talk about. One of the biggest mistakes we make is assuming that just because we're talking, we must be solving the right problem. It's not that simple. If you're not addressing the right issue, you'll end up in the same conversation over and over again. 
Crucial conversations are topic-rich environments. Human interactions and relationships are complex. There are multiple issues and side issues and tangents. You've probably been in that conversation before. You think you're talking with your brother about plans for an upcoming family gathering. Suddenly, you're in a completely different conversation about the time your parents brought you, uh, bought you a brand new bike because you've always been their favorite and your brother could never measure up. Whoa, you think, where did all of that come from? Crucial conversations are most successful when they're focused on one issue. Because human interactions are inherently complex, focusing a crucial conversation on a single topic takes effort. It requires us to thoughtfully unbundle and then prioritize the issues at hand. For example, let's look at the case of Wendy and Sandrine. Wendy is a project manager at a global technology company. She's been there many years and has successfully led numerous projects, large and small. She recently began working with a new manager, Sandrine. Sandrine joined the organization a year ago with a reputation as a hard-charging, get-things-done, break-eggs-when-needed executive. Sandrine asked Wendy to put together a timeline for a project, and now they're sitting down to review it. Sandrine, I'm excited to have you and your team dig in on this project. Let's talk timelines. Wendy, it'll just it'll take us just over six months. Sandrine, oh, well, when I looked at it, it seemed like you should be able to finish the whole thing by the end of this quarter. At this point, we have the first element of a crucial conversation, a difference of opinion. Wendy thinks the project will take at least twice as long as Sandrine expected. Wendy, well, it's a good thing we're talking about it now before we've made any commitments because there's no way to finish it by then. I mean, that's half the usual time for a project like this. Sandrine, that's why I put you in this role in the first place. You are able to do the impossible. Let me give you the full context of just how important this is. I need you to figure out how to get this done by the end of the quarter. Other project launches are at stake. The accelerated schedules are already in the master plan. Our senior team is counting on us, or more specifically, on you. And just like that, the next two elements of a crucial conversation come into play. The stakes are high and the emotions are rising. This is an important project for Wendy, for Sandrine, and for for their organization, Sandrine is feeling pressured and he's starting to apply the same pressure on Wendy. So what happens next? Wendy, wait a minute. You've already made a commitment? You agreed to a deadline before we even talked about about whether it was doable? Sandrine, hey Wendy, you know we need a big win this, this year. Look, I really pushed for you to be the one to lead this project. Do you know what I said about you? I said you were a team player. Was I mistaken? Wow. There's a lot going on in this one conversation. Wendy has put together a timeline, shared it with her manager, and bam, the whole thing has blown up in her face. Not only does she still have to get to agreement with her manager about the project timeline, the original issue, but now there are a whole host of other issues as well. Think Think about what would be going through your mind right now if you were Wendy. For example, how will I ever get this project done? She's setting me up to fail. This is unfair to my team. What am I going to say uh, to my family about the crazy long hours I will be putting in? Can I tell the truth about what I'm thinking about uh, right now? Will I lose my job if I do? Do I even want this career? Do I want to work for Sandrine? Wendy is clearly facing a crucial conversation right now. But the question is, which conversation? 
What should she right now in this moment with Sandrine talk about? Why we usually choose the wrong topic. When faced with complex problems like this, we really stop and ponder which topic we should address. Instead, we naturally default to one of two mistaken directions. The first is called easy over hard. We're not talking about eggs right now. But I'm going to make a note of this in the cafe chat because it's another good easy over hard. That seems like a good name for the episode as well with an egg to represent it as well. When faced with a high stakes emotional conversation, we have a bias for choosing the topic we think we can win with. That usually means we pick something easier than the issue that is really in the way of our most important goals. We think, I'll just start with this little issue and see how that goes. It's like we're testing the waters or trying to get across the lake without getting wet. For example, if you've concluded your direct report is incompetent at some aspect of his or her job, you might sugarcoat the problem by addressing minor recent mistakes. Your unstated hope is that your report will infer how big the problem is without your coming out and saying it. Nice try, but easy really works. The second is called recent over right. We tend to focus on the most recent event or behavior rather than on the one that matters the most. If a colleague treats your comments in meetings in a way you find disrespectful, you talk about the most recent slight rather than sharing the larger pattern. Hey, you say, after the meeting, you started talking over me in there when I hadn't finished my point. Your colleague shrugs and says, shoot, sorry, I I guess I got a little too enthusiastic. You say, "Uh uh-huh, but you think, you do that all the time, you self-centered jerk. We favor recent overwrite for a couple of reasons. First, we can actually remember the specifics, Second, we don't want to be accused of dredging up ancient history. I was actually thinking that um, as well, um, that, you know, recent overwrite. By the way, you know, there are two issues going on here that I just want to point out. Number one is, uh, I mean, is first of all, making sure that you stay on topic, right? I mean, this point has been raised already so that you don't go down tangents. But the other one, I mean, there are two issues. One is you need to get to the root cause of an issue. What are we really talking about? So it's actually what are we really talking about in addition to staying on topic. So it's two points, right? I just want to make sure that that landed with you, right? Get to understand the point and then stick to and on the point. Those are the two points that I just wanted to mention um, as well. And then I can also see the problem of, you know, dredging the past, right? Which is, how long has that been stewing inside you? How long have you been harboring these, you know, this bitterness, this ill will as well? Remember, this goes back to the concept of the lag, the time lag. The more time that things elapse, the the more that problem is going to fester and be blown out of control. So I don't think that, I, I think, Obviously, there's a reconciliation. It's being able to address things when they, you know, when they arise, but it's also being able to make sure that we're addressing, again, you know, uh, and not falling into the trap of, of recent over right or easy over hard. So 
uh, I'm curious as to how uh, the authors would actually um, be able to um, reconcile that because I'm still not sure I know the answer. I just know that there is an answer. Three signs you're having the wrong conversation. Falling into these traps lead to fairly predictable results. We end up having the wrong conversation, which keeps us stuck. To avoid this mistake, learn to recognize three signals that you're talking about the wrong thing. Memorize them. When you see them, imagine a yellow warning light flashing in your mind that says, wrong topic. When that light pulses, push back from the table and ask yourself, what's the real issue here? That's just preempting what I just you know, said earlier. Number one, uh, your emotions escalate. When you're having the wrong conversation, even if that conversation is going well, you know on some level that you're not addressing or resolving the issue. Consequently, you come in feeling frustrated, and that feeling increases as the conversation progresses. That's happening right now to Wendy in the conversation above. When the conversation started, she was feeling confident in her timeline. By the end, she was apprehensive and afraid for her job. That escalated emotion that should signal to her that the issue is no longer the project deadline, something more important needs to be addressed. Number two, you walk away skeptical. Sure, maybe you come to the end of the conversation with an agreement, but even as you walk away, you think to yourself, <clears throat> you think to yourself nothing is really going to change here. Or you get to agreement, but doubt that the changes you settled on will solve the real problem. Whatever agreement you come to is only so much window dressing because it won't get you to what you really want. Whatever agreement you came to, sorry, is only so much window dressing because it won't get you to what you really want. Point number three, you're in a deja vu dialogue. If you ever have the same conversation with the same people a second time, the problem is not them, it's you. You're having the wrong conversation. If even as you say the words, they feel familiar because you've had this conversation before, maybe even a dozen times, you're on the wrong topic. One of the best ways to ensure you talk about the right topic is to get good at noticing when you're on the wrong one. Memorize these three warning signs. Then every time you recognize they're happening, use them as a cue to push back from the table and ask yourself, what's the real issue I need to address? Skills for finding the right topic. You've likely known someone who seems gifted at putting a finger on exactly the right issue. The conversation is swirling and churning and suddenly the person says, you know, I think the real issue here is trust. We've lost confidence in each other or maybe, or makes some other brilliant deduction of the previous 53 minutes of chaos. A dozen heads nod and suddenly you begin making progress because you're now talking about the real issue. How does someone do that? The answer is that this person is skilled at three elements of choosing the right topic. The person knows how to unbundle, choose, and simplify the issues involved. Let's look first at unbundling. Unbundle. There are three levels of conversations you may need to have about the issue itself, and a fourth relating to the process of the conversation. We'll address pro process later. A good way to find the right one begins by unbundling or teasing apart the various issues level by level. You can remember these levels with the acronym CPR, Content, Pattern, Relationship, Content. 
The first time a problem comes up, talk about the content, the immediate pain. If either the action itself or its immediate consequences are the issue, you've got a content problem. Let me read that again. The first time a problem comes up, talk about the content, the immediate pain. If either the action itself or its immediate consequences are the issue, you, you, you've got a, pro, a content problem. I'm trying to understand that point. I'm confused about it. If either the action itself or its consequences are the issue, you've got a content problem. Okay, so that's what it is. It's content problem. For example, your coworker failed to get you the marketing analytics you need in order to finish a report for your manager. Now your neck is on the line because your report was late or you're giving a presentation in a team meeting and one of your fellow team members keeps interrupting and talking over you. If this is the first time this has happened, it's a content problem. Pattern. The next time the same problem comes up, think pattern. Now the concern is not just that this has happened once, but that's that a pattern is starting to develop already has. For example, the last three times a really exciting project came to your team, your manager assigned it to others despite your expressed interest. The issue is no longer just one assignment, it's a pattern that's emerging. It can be challenging to determine when to move from content to pattern. Often, it may feel like you're jumping to conclusions if you move to pattern uh, after only a second occurrence of the issue. Yet, you want to address patterns early and candidly before they become entrenched. It can be helpful to think of it this way. The first time something happens, it's an incident. The second time, it might be coincidence. The third time, it's a pattern. So it goes incident, coincidence, pattern. And then the third is relationship. Finally, as problems continue, they can begin to impact the relationship. Relationship issues get to deepen, get to deeper concerns about trust, competence, or respect. For example, we may begin to doubt someone's competence or question whether we can trust a person to keep com- to, to keep commitments. Or we may conclude after repeated incidents that a person doesn't respect our role or contribution. With these doubts and questions at the forefront of our thinking, we begin to subtly or overtly relate to them differently. Sometimes a relationship issue can emerge fully formed in the first instance. For example, if you see a colleague put sensitive files onto a thumb drive and take the drive home, you may have an immediate trust issue. To see CPR in action, let's take a look at a very sensitive example from a client of ours. How would you use CPR to help him decide what topic to address? I'm the only non-white person on my team. I've been called by the wrong name multiple times in meetings by my immediate manager. After it happened three times, I corrected her in the meeting. She later gave me feedback that I shouldn't have bothered to correct my name because all names of people of my ethnicity sound familiar, so it shouldn't really make a difference to me. On other occasions, she she suggested I adopt an English name. Can you see how important it is for this person to decide what the right topic is to address? Unbundling helps people see a variety of options. Keep it at content. Solve the immediate problem by correcting anyone who calls you by the wrong name. Move it to pattern. Express your concern that her referring to you by wrong names has become a pattern. Talk relationship. Let your manager know that your name is an important part of your identity and that you feel disrespected when someone you work with regularly doesn't take the time to respect our role or contribution. 
With these doubts and questions at the forefront of our thinking, we begin to subtly or overtly relate to them differently. Sometimes a relationship issue can emerge fully formed in the first instance. For example, if you see a colleague put sensitive files onto a thumb drive and take them home, you may have an immediate trust issue. Oh my goodness, I actually read the same thing. I was like, wait a second, I've read that already. <laughs> I apologize. Um, that, was, that was so weird. That was totally weird. Let me just do it again. So remember, we're going back to the example, talk relationship. Let your manager know that your name is an important part of your identity and that you feel disrespected when someone you work with regularly doesn't take the time to learn it. Or perhaps even more important, you feel disrespected by the suggestion that you change it. Unbundling the issue with CPR helps us gain clarity <clears throat> into the situation. It also sets us up to make a conscious choice. At which level do we want to hold this conversation? Before we get to making that decision, though, let's consider one more issue you may want to discuss. The process of the conversation itself. I think we're going to stop there. Um, and, you know, it's it's almost nine. Anyone have any thoughts uh, or comments? Want to um, have any questions? <clears throat> Otherwise... We will wind down for the day. Um, yeah, I mean, I there was a lot that we covered today, I think. And, you know, obviously the most recent thing we discussed is this concept of unbundling, of being able to, you know, again, understand what the real issue here is. It, you know, again, the idea of incident coincidence, um, or I think the third one was, in this case, a pattern, Right. So like being able to, um, is that how they called it? Let me just see. Yeah. Um, and, and being able to understand what the real issue is. I mean, in the comment of, of this example of this non-white person being referred to by the wrong name, I mean, it's, I also have a question here. Like for the, I mean, it's, to me, it's like, well, it's interesting because it's, it, to me, it's, blatant racism i mean it's like discrimination it's like how on earth you know i in that situation i would explode i'd probably get fired you know if i was that person um i would i would you know i probably wouldn't say it in the meeting i would probably call the meeting afterwards and just say by the way you know i i i clearly i mean clearly it's it's more than pattern right i mean the pattern has led to a bigger issue, and the underlying issue here in a point is a lack of respect and borderline racism. And I guess maybe the idea of is avoiding. Uh, certainly, the objective is to avoid emotion. I'm thinking right because although one might be feeling tremendous emotion in that situation, could it be careless? Could it be you know just um, insensitive? It could be absolutely. Um, that final comment, though, I mean, is pretty unambiguous, in my opinion, right? And, um, and, but I think being able to have that calm conversation and be able to, even though this person has been disrespectful, not embarrass them, if, especially if they're a boss, etc., but be able to represent uh, feelings and importance, identity, that certainly does set up a conversation um, that might actually avoid, you know, it spiraling and, and, and 
getting to a point where, you know, the point of no return. Although I still kind of feel like maybe that's where it should go. I don't know. I'm, I'm torn, you know. I think maybe a, a, a solid outcome is to be able to say, you know what, thank you for helping me understand your... Per- I mean, I, I guess the question, and I, you know, I'm thinking this through in my mind. I'm thinking this through in my mind even, even um, you know, out loud is if you are, you know, this this manager. I think what's interesting here is, is, is to reverse the roles. Let's assume for a second, by the way, that you're not a racist. I mean, I hope not, right? And you're in the meeting, you're referring to one of your, you know, direct reports incorrectly, you know. So, for example, you know, I'm just going to use an example in, uh, you know, in, in this room. Uh, so in this room, for example, um, you know there is uh, there is Keisha, but it uh, but but what if I was saying Keisha? Um, you know, like in in, uh, in you know in South Africa, for example, the name uh, you know Levi um, might be pronounced Levi. Yeah. So let's just say you know Keisha instead of Keisha. So. And I don't know the, the right pronunciation. So, Keisha, if you want to come on the stage, you can tell me and I'll make sure that I always call you the right name by your name, not the right name, by your name. Um, so, if, if Keisha, let's just go with Keisha. If Keisha was to correct me in a meeting uh, and I said Keisha and she's like, it's Keisha, um, how's that going to make me feel? Probably not great, right? Um, if I'm secure and confident and, you know, and a decent person, I'm probably going to be, oh, I'm so sorry, my bad, I apologize, and just move on, right? But what if I didn't? What if now I feel like I was embarrassed? What if, what if I would have... So, so you have that issue, right? That issue at hand. But now what if Keisha calls me, you know, just, just, you know, just pulls me aside often and said, by the way, and of course, you've got to be able to also... Um, know how to position it, right? Because remember, are you having the right conversation? So if, if Keisha did feel it was a content issue, then Keisha would just say, by the way, it's, it's Keisha, not Keisha. Oh, okay, thanks for telling me, right? But if it's happened a number of times, um, she could come up to me and say, by the way, you know, you've referred to me as, you know, as Keisha a couple times. Um, and, and so I just wanted to let you know that it's actually Keisha, um, oh, Keisha, good. Um, and, and then again, I, I'd be like, oh, okay, you know. So there are a couple of things going on there. Number one is, you know, she mentioned, hey, you know, it happened a couple of times, and so I'm just bringing to this, bringing this to your attention now. So you know, I mean, as opposed to me blowing up and saying, well, well, why didn't you say anything, you know? And, uh, you know, if she did come up to me and say, for the last three months, you've been referring to me as Keisha, and I don't appreciate it, and I don't, re- well, I mean, that conversation's going in a completely different direction. But now she's come up to me, and she said, by the way, you know, for two or three times you've referred to me as, as Keisha, and it's actually Keisha. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention privately. And again, hopefully, I have the ability to say, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, my bad. Um, I won't do that again, right? Um, now, if I respond with that third issue, clearly, you know, that pattern is, uh, it's definitely a relationship issue. Um, there are other issues in play. 
And even if there are no, like what I think are blatant, you know, discrimination or, or racism issues in this particular case, what if it's just any, what if it's any name? I mean, that's not a way to relate to a human being. So how do you approach that situation? Again, I don't know the answer with a crucial conversation. Um, it seems like a, like a lose-lose. So I'm going to make a note so of these, um, I'm just, I'm just, I can't wait to find out how to address these situations, because, because honestly, I know we're going a bit long today, but like, I don't know how I would handle that situation if I was this person who's been called by the wrong name. I just don't know. Like, I, I probably would keep quiet. This is, and and this, um, I wonder how many of you are like this. We actually do keep quiet. We keep quiet, but it just eventually we explode. And it's the explosion that that actually leads to this disastrous outcome. Because that's this like, where the hell did that come from? Well, we we know that sign, right? We know the sign. Well, like, whoa, where did that come from? Well, that came from the fact that the thing has been brewing and stewing for so long that eventually it exploded. So we should never be surprised when somebody explodes in front of us. That is a clear sign that, you know, they've been that too much time lag. That is a clear sign that you, if you are in a position of power or if you are in a leadership, um, that, that you have not created a safe environment that allows for people to be able to get things off their mind to be able to raise things, to be able to bring things out and put things on the table in a you know respectful and in a calm manner. So I definitely feel like I have some insight on being able on the timing element. I'm still a little confused, you know, as to how this particular issue should be solved or resolved. But I have a feeling um, we're going to find out. So anyway. Uh, Tuesday, February 20th, just checking uh, if I will be here uh, because I know that I have some coaching sessions coming up. Lo and behold, uh, I have a coaching session um, next Tuesday. So it is possible that I may not be in at all and that we may just push this to the following uh, week, which... Uh, as it turns out, I have another coaching session. So I have to decide uh, if uh, how we're going to do this. And, and my problem is the coaching sessions begin at nine. Um, so one thing I might do is just go ahead and get everything set up um, and just still do the session um, from, you know, do this, um, this um, crucial conversation reading in the actual, you know, session room and then when the clients come in, maybe just cut it short. So when the first client arrives, which could be at like 8.45, the other thing is I might just even experiment by doing it 7 to 8 in the morning just to see if we get more people in the room, if it's a better time, etc. If you want to know exactly what's going on, there are two ways. Um, one is just check back with Startup Club. Occasionally I'll leave a voice note or come into Discord, uh, that's discord.gg forward slash alpha collective. Um, and uh, generally, I'll put, I'll put it in the cafe chat uh, announcements. Um, finally, you can always um, 
You can always subscribe to the podcast version of this, which is bit.ly forward slash collective cafe to go. And then that way, whenever there is a new session, you can just catch up with the with the audio as opposed to have been live when, when I actually was in the room. Um, final thing is just to let you know, we do this five days a week. Um, we're reading Crucial Conversations on Tuesday. On Thursdays, we're reading Four Obsessions of an Extraordinary Executive. Um, and uh, I may actually not um, be able to. Um, I've got a session that I'm, um, I've got an event that I have to attend on Thursday. So doing my best to try and keep everything going. Um, I might even just do it from the car, um, but, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I do my best to keep, to keep things consistent. Uh, Slick, Keisha, uh, Salem or Salem, uh, Anath, Fan, Muna, Kik, Abigail, uh, Salangi, uh, Franad, and everyone that came in and out uh, during uh, the last hour or so. Hope you enjoyed this. Um, and uh, good luck with all the crucial conversations. No doubt that you're going to be having uh, from now through the rest of your lives. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.